A simple black necktie may be the smoking gun to solving a mystery that has fascinated the country and law enforcement officials for 50 years. Who is D.B. Cooper and what happened to him? What is up, Collective? I am Nina. I am the host of the Collective Culture Podcast. If you're joining me for the first time, and if you're joining me for the first time, this is not my normal topics (laughs) Um, or my normal times uh, for my show. So this is going to be new. I'm doing a Sunday night Unsolved Mysteries episodes. I hope you guys enjoy it. I'm definitely enjoying researching it and learning about this specific case. As you heard in the intro and in the title, who and where is D.B. Cooper, um, who is also known as Dan Cooper, uh, which I will get to in a moment. But I want to let you guys know where this uh, idea came from for this episode. I'm very into, like most people, I'm very into Unsolved Mysteries and investigations. Um, I'm also a huge fan of uh, the movie Catch Me If You Can, which this D.B. Cooper story is nothing like Catch Me If You Can, but, you know, same kind of like intrigue and investigation, um, you know, it just, it's intriguing to me and exciting. Um, but if you don't know what Catch Me If You Can is, I don't know how you survive without watching this movie because it's amazing. Um, but it is a story, uh, it's a real story of a guy named Frank Abagnale who was a con man at a very young age. His father actually taught him how to be a con man in his teenage years and as a teenager got a job as a professional pilot for Pan Am Airlines, um, I think back in the fifties and got away with this for years um, you know, eventually did get caught by the FBI and then actually started working for them. So it's an amazing story. It's an amazing movie. Um, so please, if you haven't watched it, like go watch it. Um, but after you listen to this episode, <laughs> cause it's very interesting. This story, this case is very interesting. Um, so let's get back to it. Um, and if you guys want to join this conversation, please click the link in the description. So, yeah, who is this Dan Cooper? Um, At least that's who he claimed to be when he walked into a Pacific Northwest airline and bought a $20 ticket from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington, and then later parachuted out of the aircraft with ransom money and never was seen um, again. So, very interesting story. Um, And let's just start at the beginning. So on November 24th, 1971, the day before Thanksgiving, a nondescriptive man who appeared to be in his mid-40s, about six feet tall, bought a ticket, again, for $20 at Northwest Orient Airline Flight 305. He gave his name, Dan Cooper, which later found out it was fake. Shortly after takeoff from Portland, he handed a note to a young flight attendant in which he claimed to have a bomb. 
Now, it's good to note that when he handed the note to the flight attendant, she was very unbothered by this, um, you know, kind of just thinking that he was giving her his number. And when Cooper realized she wasn't going to read the note right away, he, you know, tapped her on the shoulder and quietly told her, Miss, I think you want to look at that note. I have a bomb. So he told the flight attendant, um, now that she was listening, that he wanted her to sit down and listen to the rest of his plan and what she ultimately needed to tell the captain. Um... So he then proceeded to open the attache case, um, which contained numerous wires, red sticks, and a battery. Cooper demanded that he had was given four parachutes, two main ones that go on the back and two reserves that go on the front, $200,000 in $20 bills. That's worth over a million dollars today. And that... Um, it all be given to him by the time they got to Seattle Airport. So after the flight landed to Seattle Airport, Cooper released the 36 passengers when authorities provided the money and the parachutes. However, he forced two pilots, a flight engineer, and a flight attendant to remain on the plane. After it refueled, he ordered the pilots to fly to Mexico City. Per his instructions, now this is very interesting to note, his instructions because... It seems to me that he's very knowledgeable of flight patterns um, and aircraft. So his instructions were as follows. To fly the plane under 10,000 feet at a speed slower than 200 knots. And then at 8 p.m., while between Seattle and Reno, Nevada, widely believed to be the area of Ariel, Washington, Cooper lowered the rear steps and jumped and disappeared. So... Again, very knowledgeable of flight patterns and aircraft, very knowledgeable of the Boeing 727 plane that he was on, that he knew that there were rear steps that he could jump out, very knowledgeable of the parachute because um, the parachute was not just some, you know, easy parachute where you could just clip it on and, you know, it was more um, to it than that. So the FBI, um, so yeah, so it's good to know that he was very knowledgeable in these things. However, there were some things that I don't think he was very prepared for, like the weather um, in November in the Northern Pacific, or the Pacific Northwest. Um, But the FBI launched what would become one of the longest and most exhaustive investigations in history. And they called it the NORJAC, uh, stands for Northwest Hijacking. Initially, the agency believed that Cooper knew both planes in in the area, like I said, and it was speculated that maybe he even had military training and possibly was a paratrooper. However, it was decided that he was not experienced skydiver because the jump was too dangerous. He also failed to notice that the two reserve parachutes were sewn shut for, for use of training. And that being said, the FBI notes here the fbi actually interviewed skydiving experts who weighed their opinions on the matter and many disagreed with the fate the fbi statement saying that you know it wasn't possible and argued that hundreds of many of thousands hundreds or maybe even thousands of parachutists could have pulled off this stunt and walked away um 
Because like I said, the weather was definitely a problem um, when he jumped out. And let me just tell you what they are reporting the weather was like during this time. So, let me see if I can get my life together here. Okay, so he probably should have checked the weather. I mean, you know, he picked probably one of the worst days to jump out of an airplane. Um, And you guys got to think, at 200 miles per hour, you've got storm winds hitting you in the face as you are jumping out of an airplane. So, you know, I mean... It's not the uh it's not the smartest thing he's ever done for sure. Um but yeah, if he so so the FBI is claiming if he had managed to somehow survive this jump, it would have been miraculous. First Cooper picked a terrible day to do this. It was quite stormy in the Pacific Northwest and Cooper made his jump several hours after sunset, falling into heavy rain, and a snowstorm that frequently strike the northwest in late November. There were thick clouds at 5,000 feet, which is what he jumped, and would have obscured where he was landing. The FBI states that no experienced parachutist would have jumped in, pitch, in a pitch black night in the rain with 200 round per hour winds. And, you know, that's going back to the to the um, when they interviewed skydivers, experienced skydivers, they said that that is not true, that he, you know, he could have definitely made it um, if he was an experienced skydiver. Um, in all likelihood, Cooper ended up somewhere in the hilly or even mountainous terrain of southwestern Washington and um, amid the extended rain and snowstorm. We don't know what the elevation was where Cooper landed, but the weather data from Stampede Pass, which sits in the central Washington Cascades at 3,500 feet and likely about 100 to 150 miles north of where Cooper ended up, registered snowfall on the 24th and four days after. So horrible conditions for him to be jumping off an airplane, like I said. So... (laughs) Um, so where was that? Oh, okay. So again, nothing was found guys. No body, no parachutes. Um, although there is a reporter for the history and discovery channel who I'll get to in a second. Um, he believes that one of the parachutes is probably still in the landing area and fully intact. So, there is that. It still hasn't been found. However, some of the ransom money actually was found around eight years later by a young boy on vacation with his family in Oregon. And he found several packets of the ransom money with the identifying um, serial numbers on them, leading them to the intense search of the area for Cooper's remains, which nothing was ever found. Um, But, I mean about $6,000 of this money was actually found. And it's good to note that it was like 20 miles away from where Cooper actually landed. So it's very interesting. Like how the hell did that money get there? You know, how did it get 20 miles away from where he actually jumped? Um, so there, so again, back to the reporter for the history and discovery channel, Eric Eulis, 
um, was on a podcast uh, last year. It's called the Crawl Space Podcast, um, where he goes into more detail of his year and year, year after year after year research of the D.B. Cooper case. And he goes into way more detail about it. But one of the things that he actually did uh, discover is that there is um, some evidence, some new evidence that has popped up. um, And it perhaps may bring somebody closer to figuring this out. Um, He made a breakthrough, though. He said that a black tie that belonged to Cooper that he had left on the plane had answers. The tie had actually given us three very important particles that I would consider very significant, he says. It appears to be something that can amount to a commercial DNA that points to a very specific company and a very specific division within the company at a very specific time. Euless said that that he analyzed a 2017 lab report that showed an abundance of unique metal particles that were found on the tie. He was then able to match up just one Pennsylvania metal manufacturing company that was operational at that time that had special patents on those specific metals. He contacted the company and and looked into employees who worked there in the 1960s and 70s and traveled to Pittsburgh where the company was based. Euless was able to narrow it down to eight researchers working on the specific metal type projects at that time. In a press conference, Euless said that a retired company manager recently told him that an employee named Vincent, or excuse me, Vince Peterson fit the bill and description of Cooper's, of D.B. Cooper, and was someone who regularly traveled to the Pacific Northwest on business for the company during that time period. However, Peterson died in 2002, and when Euless spoke to his son, his son did not believe that his father was D.B. Cooper. So, um, you know, (laughs) where there is an answer, there leads to more questions. Which is, you know, ultimately the case when you're dealing with unsolved mysteries. <laughs> but uh, apparently Netflix is doing a, I think it's three or four part docu-series on this case. And um, I, I cannot find it, guys. I looked before or while I was doing the research for this episode, I had looked for it and they say it's on Netflix and then it came out July of last year in 2022. I cannot find it. So if you guys can find it, please let me know. Um, and also too, if you do any research about this case and you figure anything out or you find any, um, more evidence, please let me know. I'd love to do a update episode on this case. Um, so yeah, I couldn't find it. So I apologize for that guys. Um, not sure why they're saying it's on Netflix if it's not, but you know, Hey, it is what it is. Um, so there was, uh, apparently what, what sparked the docu-series for this is because there was a man who claimed to be Cooper. His name was Dick Briggs. He came forward and claimed to be the infamous uh, D.B. Cooper. He claimed to be an expert in parachuting and having served 
the army as a special forces soldier during the Vietnam War immediately made him a notable suspect. For a short while, author and self-made sleuth Tom J. Colbert did believe that Briggs was D.B. Cooper, as he fit the criteria and ticked most of the boxes that pointed towards him being Cooper. In 1980, however, Briggs died from a car accident shortly after Colbert and the FBI officials and investigators confirmed that Briggs was not the man they were looking for. Looking for. Thomas said, I spent eight months on that thread. I actually believed he was Cooper. But then I found out he's never been to Vietnam, can't parachute. <laughs> he was a part-time weekend warrior for the Air Forces, so he didn't even have to go to Vietnam. Right at that point, I knew I was looking at the man that, or I knew I was looking at um, this man and thinking I got the wrong guy. So there's been so many um, false um, tips for this case also. And there's another one, there was another suspect um, named Robert Rackshaw, who they believe could be a possible suspect Um, He was a helicopter pilot for the U.S. Army and earned multiple awards for completing chopper rescues during the Vietnam War. However, Rackshaw violated the rules and his commander's instructions by making unauthorized parachute jumps and lying about attending two universities. As a result, his seven-year career with the U.S. Army came to an end. And after being laid off from the U.S. Army, Rackstraw began showing reckless behavior and became a four-time felon, escape artist, and state prison convict. Later, the FBI considered Rackstraw a promising suspect after seeing his striking resemblance to the D.B. Cooper sketch and comparing his military skills sets and criminal record, which would determine the likeliness that he could be the guy that they'd been looking for. But... After finding no evidence and any direct link between Robert Rackshaw and the D.B. Cooper case, the FBI eliminated Rackstraw as a suspect. So, uh, again, you know, they had who they thought was um, an identical match, and there was not. In one instance, though, Rackstraw even tried to fake his death by jumping out of a plane over Montreal Bay, or... uh, Monterey Bay, excuse me, leaving behind his wife and children. The children hadn't seen their daddy in one year, and when the doorbell rang, it was the FBI looking for him. This guy is connected to 60 towns in 28 states, six careers, three families, and so far 16 identities, says Colbert. After lengthy investigation and finding circumstantial evidence, which they believe links Rackstraw to the D.B. Cooper case, Colbert and his team are certain that Rackstraw is D.B. Cooper. That's what they're saying. Um, But, you know, it is what it is. Who knows? We don't really know. (laughs) That's just based on the docuseries that they're supposedly putting on Netflix or they have. I don't know. Um, However, the two flight attendants that were interviewed um, gave a full description of D.B. Cooper. Uh, Tina Mucklow and Florence Schaefer were among the flight attendants and crew members who interacted most with Cooper. Mucklow and Schaefer were interviewed on the same night of the incident, but in different cities. 
when asked to describe the hijacker's appearance, they gave identical descriptions of the man around five foot ten, his mid forties, comb backed black hair, and a darker olive skin tone. A passenger and a student of the University of Oregon, Bill Mitchell, sat across Cooper for three hours. When asked to describe Cooper, Mitchell gave a near identical description to the two other flight attendants, except for Cooper being slightly shorter than five foot ten. Another passenger, Robert Gregory, believed Cooper to be a, Me- a Mexican American or Native American descent due to his complexion. So he he had a very um, I mean he was in a he had a you know he had a suit and tie on he had loafers on and a trench coat and you know slick back hair he was going for that very James Bond look um, that sophisticated look was seemed to be from the interview of the other people that interacted with him very calm knowing what he was doing knowing the exact fight flight pattern and what the plane needed to do for him to be able to jump out of it what parachutes he needed exact dollar amount he specifically wanted it in 20 dollar bills i mean he had his shit together you know like for the most part um but Again, jumping out of an airplane at 5,000 feet in a snowstorm is not the brightest thing to do. So, and then again, though, I mean, there's no body. There's no body, and they've been literally looking at this case for 50 years and still have not found any body or the money. Um... Again, Eric Eulis in this podcast episode that I'm going to link in the description by, or in the description below, he does believe that the money was buried um, and that when Cooper tried to come back to get it, um, maybe he could find it. I mean, obviously, because if there's snow and, you know, whatever. Um, but, I mean, it's just, it's a remarkable unsolved mystery. Um, that I hope you guys enjoyed hearing about it. Um, and also too, following the D.B. Cooper, um, incident and the subsequent, uh, hype around the case, Cooper became perceived as the American folk legend and hero. The D.B. Cooper fans attend the gather, attend and gather around an annual CooperCon event where they praise and discuss Cooper's bold escape, such as whether he could have survived the jump, his whereabouts, if he survived it, and other factors which played a part before and after the jump. So he's got like a fan base, you know, most criminals do. Um, But, I mean, essentially this was a victimless crime. Nobody was actually hurt. He actually jumped off the plane with the the quote-unquote bomb that he had. Um... So, yeah, it's it's just a very fascinating case. And I wanted to share it with you guys because I thought it was fascinating. Apparently, a lot of people also think this is fascinating. If you have heard of this um, unsolved case, please tell me about it. Um, either email me at media.collectiveculture at gmail or just click on the link in the description and I'll take you to all of my social media platforms, all of my links, my website, all of that. And our shop, if you guys would like to purchase a Collective Culture yoga mats or shirts, hoodies, backpacks, we have notebooks, we have water bottles, we have all kinds of stuff on there. 
please go check out the shop at the link in the description. And there you will also find uh, the link to my website, which I have uh, my abstract art pieces on there. I am an abstract artist. And I also have digital prints at the Collective Culture Shop. So, again, I hope you guys have enjoyed this. I hope you guys are having a beautiful Sunday night. And, uh, yeah, until next time, I'm sending you so much love. Ciao.